Hey, everybody, this is Ben Bowman. Welcome back to another episode of The Oregon Bridge. For most of my time at the Oregonian, I was on the investigative team. And after having spent 16 years in the daily newspaper, I had enormous respect for the people I worked with. But when I walked, it was really an effort to say, I think there's a better way to cover the things that really matter to people in Portland. I felt that to get to the inflection point that had led me to write it about a state that had been in a crisis, I had to tell the state's story too. So that was really my goal, was to tell two life stories, you know, one of them calls and one was Oregon's. All right, folks, this week, I am very excited to bring you an interview with Brent Walth. Brent Walth is a longtime Oregon journalist who's worked for The Oregonian. He's worked for Willamette Week. He won numerous awards in his career as a journalist, including five times he won the Bruce Bayer Award, which is Oregon's top reporting prize. He won the Gerald Loeb Award, nation's top honor for business and financial reporting. And he also won the Pulitzer Prize. He won that award in 2001 for his reporting exposing he describes this in the episode. It was at the time called Immigration and Naturalization Service, and um, they were doing some horrific things that he exposed with a team of journalists from the Oregonian. But most importantly, in my opinion, or at least for the purposes of this podcast, he's also the author of a really incredible book. In fact, my favorite book written about Oregon. It's called Fire at Eden's Gate. He wrote it many years ago when he was a, a young, young man. We talk about that on the podcast as well. And it's a biography of Tom McCall. And Tom McCall is, in my opinion, I say this in the podcast, the greatest Oregonian who ever lived. Certainly, I think the greatest governor who ever served. And someone who I think's impact on the state is still deeply felt. Tom McCall still gets quoted all the time by politicians in Oregon. And his the centerpieces of his legacy are still intact, which, again, is something we chat about. It's also just an incredible story. It's a really interesting story. Tom McCall was an odd, eccentric, charismatic, commanding, contradictory guy. Unlike, I would say, anybody, at least on the political scene in Oregon, there's really no comparison. There's nobody who's quite like him. And we talk about what he was like as a person. And we also talk about his legacy, his impact, what he actually did for the state. And Brent is literally the perfect person to talk to about this because he wrote the book on Tom McCall. This is the book that I buy for all the people who work in my office, interns and staff, because I think it is sort of like a good, you have to understand where Oregon's been to understand today's political context. And I think this book does a really good job of describing where Oregon's been through the lens of Tom McCall. So a couple things to look for as we're talking through Tom McCall and his impact. Right now in Oregon, there's a big debate about housing and there's a big debate about development. There's this conversation about the CHIPS Act and how Oregon can access some of those federal dollars. And centered in those conversations is land use planning, sometimes referred to as Senate Bill 100. That's the number of the bill when it was originally passed, when Tom McCall signed it. We allude to Hector McPherson in this episode, who was a state legislator at the time who helped pioneer this new policy. The reason why I really wanted to talk to Brent was because I think over the next year or two, part of Tom McCall's legacy, in particular the land use planning aspect, is going to be at the center of the public policy debates about how we want Oregon to look in the next decade or two or three or 10. And so I think it was, I just thought it was really valid. I thought it, I hoped it would be valuable for you all and particularly younger listeners who are less familiar with Tom McCall, to hear a little bit about who the guy was that helped pioneer this and ultimately prevented it from being taken away, which is my favorite, my favorite part of the podcast, my favorite part of the book. 
is when we talk about the end of Tom McCall's life and how at the very end, when he is sick and in pain, he gives the last of himself to protecting his vision for the state and fending off what was called Measure 6 at the time, which tried to repeal land use planning. It was the last major challenge, I think, of the idea. So anyway, I could talk about this forever. Brent was incredibly generous with his time. Even after the, the podcast ended, we kept talking for almost another hour because he's got so much insight and so many great stories from these giants of Oregon history. We talk about Tom McCall, we talk about Bob Straub, we talk about Vicatia, Mark Hatfield, Bob Packwood. All these folks were interacting at the same time on the political scene in Oregon, and all of them have had a huge impact on the state we live in today. So I will stop rambling. I'll let you get into the interview with Brent Walth, and thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode, and we'll see you back here next week. Thanks, everyone. The lawyers of Harang Long PC have represented clients in Oregon's political and policymaking arenas for decades. We have worked on some of the most consequential public policy matters in modern Oregon history for both public and private sector clients. Our lawyers combine strategic savvy with technical expertise to navigate the legal, political, and governmental landscape in pursuit of our clients' goals. To learn more about how Harang Long can help you achieve your goals, go to harang.com. That's H-A-R-R-A-N-G.com. All right, Brent Walth, thanks for coming on the podcast. You bet. I'm thrilled to be here. So we're going to talk a lot today about Tom McCall and Fired Eden's Gate and your experience writing that book and Tom McCall's legacy. But you also are notorious not just for writing this book, but as a journalist in Oregon. And I think it was two, in 2001, I think in 2000, you were a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize. And then in 2001, you and a team of reporters were awarded the Pulitzer Prize for some reporting on the U.S. immigration system. Can you give us a little snapshot about I guess both. What was the 2000 story or stories? And then what was the reporting in 2001? Yes. In 2000, Alex Pulaski and I, we were reporters for the Oregonian. And we were writing a story about the efforts of the federal government to reduce the amount of pesticides that show up most often in children's food. Congress had passed a law three years earlier hmm. intended to reduce the amounts of pesticide. And so we decided to examine to see how effective the law was. We focused on a particular pesticide, the most common one used in the Pacific Northwest, it was a pesticide used on apples. And what we discovered was that the law had largely been delayed by lobbyists, uh, lobbying from the agricultural industry. Hmm. And it really showed how difficult it was to actually put into place regulations designed to help children. And that was an explanatory story a series. And that was the finalist. So is that Alex Pulaski, the same Alex who works at the School Boards Association now? It is the same. Yes. <laughs> I figured it must be. And so then in 2001, you were awarded the prize. What was the, I believe it said it was about the U.S. immigration system. What were you covering in 2001? That's right. There were four of us all together, Kim Christensen, Rich Reed, and Julie Sullivan. And our job was to understand the ways in which the Immigration and Naturalization Service, which was what the agency was called at the time, was exercising power beyond its authority and really in many ways, abusing its power, hmm. not only toward people who were not citizens or did not have the right documentation at the time, but at times, American citizens who were targeted in by what really was a racist system, who sometimes were put in jail for weeks at a time on the slim allegation that they didn't have citizenship. We saw families broken up. You know, today, the idea of people being called dreamers, children brought here when they were young and 
by their parents and couldn't get citizenship. We saw the effects of that 20 years ago, and we're writing about that. The INS essentially maintained what was a, a secret prison system where they had as many as 20,000 detainees all over the country. Wow. Usually what they would do is they would rent out jails, uh, jail beds in, ca- in county jails, and the jail, the counties would agree never to divulge the names of the prisoners they were keeping on behalf of the INS. So family members couldn't find their loved ones. Oh, my God. And if they ever did, the INS would just pick up and move them to someplace else. It was quite a travesty. We spent a long time, wrote about six really in-depth pieces, and we were lucky enough to be honored. That's really cool. So now you're a professor at the U of O, but so did you write for the Oregonian and Willamette Week? What was your, who did you, which outlets did you work for before you became a journalism professor? I worked for the Register Guard for almost five years. I was the state capital reporter. I went to work then for the Oregonian, started off as their Washington, D.C. correspondent. I came back and covered business for a little while and environmental issues. But for my most of my time at the Oregonian, I was on the investigative team. And in 2011, I quit the Oregonian and I walked across the street and took over as managing editor at Willamette Week. I, I, mean, I skipped something. I had been at Willamette Week before I was at the Register Guard, but um, actually my earliest job, I should have mentioned, was there as a reporter. So going back as managing editor was like going home again. And after having spent 16 years in the daily newspaper, I had enormous respect for the people I worked with and the prior editors. But when I walked, it was really an effort to say, I think there's a better way to cover the things that really matter to people in Portland. And that's what Willamette Week has always tried to do. That's what I try to do as the managing editor there. That's cool. We have uh, we did a podcast a few weeks ago with Nigel talking about the Goldschmidt story and how Willamette yeah. Week has a very interesting place in the Oregon journalism ecosystem. So what years were you at Willamette Week before you went to U of O? I joined one week in May of 2011, and I left in the summer of 2015 in anticipation of going. So I was there for four years. And, you know, among the stories we did were an investigation of the sitting governor, John Kitzhaber, and the mm-hmm. conflicts of interest that his fiance or partner were creating for him. And those stories eventually led to his resignation right after his reelection. And so we were there in the midst of that. So wild times in your tenure. So I think I want to transition now to this book. If you're watching on YouTube, you can see I'm holding up Fire at Eden's Gate. Just as a level setting here, where in your career were you when you wrote this book? Oh, very early on. In fact, <laughs> reminds me, I, in, you're asking me about kind of my resume. There was, a, there was even another paper I left out. My very first job out of college was for a very small daily paper called the Daily Journal of Commerce. And a lot of people know it's still around. And I was lucky enough to get to be the legislative correspondent. They never had one before. Hmm. So my first job out of college was as, at 23 years old, I was covering the Oregon legislature. And that's all I really wanted to become, be was a political reporter. So I was really having a great time. And I got to know a lot of people, you know, Vera Katz, former mayor of Portland. She had just taken over as House Speaker. I got to know her very well. Wow. A lot of other people who went on in politics, Greg Walden, Don Kitzhaber was the Senate president then. It was really a learning experience of how the system worked. But the year I was there, Oregon was just coming out of what was the, within the worst recession since the Depression. I mean, people who did not live through it perhaps aren't aware of how devastating it was. It, mm-hmm. it forever changed the tenor and the fabric of the state. This recession was extraordinary. And as the Oregon started to emerge from it, people were saying, you know, 
that Tom McCall, who was governor, you know, back in the seventies, back a decade ago, mm-hmm. he really was bad for Oregon. Mm-hmm. He really wasn't good for Oregon. And I heard the governor say that. I heard a lot of other people say it, and I just, it just didn't sound right to me. And I had grown up in, I grew up in Oregon. McCall was, I remember McCall being governor. I mean, I, I was such a political nerd as a kid that I remember when he left the governorship thinking, boy, this is not going to be as fun anymore yeah. <laughs> without him you know, being governor. I can, I recall that distinctly. So I had all these memories and that were, you know, mostly sort of retold stories about what McCall had meant to Oregon in the years that he was governor. And let me place that for you, 1967 to 1975. So as I heard people talking about this, I thought, well, I should do a story or two or three about what McCall's legacy really was. So maybe we could sort of fact check these claims that he was actually bad for Oregon. First thing I did was I went to Powell's to go buy all the books about Tom McCall. I think that's where I bought your book. It's got the Powell's sticker. (laughs) (laughs) There you go. Well, yeah, this was in April of 1986. And I think I was 20 or 25 and i was still working for this little daily and i said uh i was gonna go buy all the books about him and read them all and then you know that would be a start and what i realized was there were no books about him except for his book right he, mccall had i won't say that he wrote a memoir but he published a memoir he talked into a microphone for several hours and the, his co-author basically transcribed it into a, a memoir and i think that and it was- while it was it was not really fact-checked, right? Like there's some things in there that are verifiably untrue. <laughs> That's right. They, they were they were verifiably part of McCall's memory at the time that he <laughs> he told those stories. But, you know, his his, his co-author was, you know, not exactly challenging him on a lot of the facts either. Sure. But it was a really entertaining book and it had tremendous insights into his thinking and, and the experiences, what it was like to go through those experiences as governor. And so I don't want to, it was very entertaining, but yes. it, it was, for me, it was sort of a baseline of like, this is his story. But there were no other books. And being kind of, you know, naive, I thought, well, I'll just go write one. And I often wish that when I had that idea, I just wish I'd kind of gone home and laid down until the feeling passed because it it was an enormous task. I had no idea what I was in for. I knew I was in over my head. Yeah. But I wanted to tell a story, not just about this one man, but I also wanted to write a biography of the state. Yeah. I felt that to get to the point, to the inflection point that had led me to write it about a state that had been in a crisis and how that stood in stark contrast to the leader that it had only a few years before, I felt I had to tell the state's story too. So that was really my goal, was to tell tell two life stories, you know, one when McCall's and one, one was Oregon's. So that's a good, this is probably a good chance. I'll probably have mentioned this in the intro already, but like, my personal opinion is I think Tom McCall is the greatest Oregonian of all time. I think he embodies the Oregon <laughs> spirit better than almost any historical figure that I can think of. And I also think that every governor that came after him to varying degrees <laughs> have tried to to fit into the shoes of Tom McCall, either rhetorically or by policy. Many governors have quoted him in their speeches. And so my like thesis and the reason one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you is because my thesis is Tom McCall still matters, and the story that you tell in this book is still relevant. And we're going to talk a little bit about why that is today. I think in this legislative session and in this context with housing being so prominent as an issue, I think Senate Bill 100 and land use planning and Tom McCall's vision of restrained growth versus 
you know, like arguments on the other side about like, so we'll, we'll talk about that in a little bit, but mm-hmm. I also think a lot of younger folks and I'll use younger, maybe mm-hmm. more generously and say anybody under 40, they, Tom McCall is he, he maybe like second or third hand. They mm-hmm. like have read about or heard Tom McCall. And I don't think that there's like a contemporary figure who is like, was like him in terms of just his personality, his manner of speaking, like his magnetism in front of a camera, his weird sort of coalition of character traits. So before we talk about the policy, like how would you describe Tom McCall as a person, as a character? Like what was he like? Well, I wish I'd met him and I hadn't. I took on this book about three years after he had died. Mm -hmm. So everything I'm going to tell you, my impressions are, you know, what I'm seen through video and, and heard through audio and, and the stories people have told. But as a person, he was always a commanding presence, even as a kid. He grew to be six and a half feet tall. And he was eloquent. He had mastered the talent of being eloquent, his eloquence as a radio broadcaster and on television. He was an extraordinary writer, so his, his power of words was always with him. But primarily, McCall never lost his sense that he was representing each individual Oregonian. And we hear this a lot from the rhetoric of politicians today. I think most of them are quite sincere. They didn't have, they don't have what it was he had, mm-hmm. which came from a background of at one time enormous wealth and the family basically lost it all. So he knew what it was like to be chauffeured to school in a limousine and also to ride, you know, horseback mm-hmm. when his family lived in, in central Oregon, and they had virtually nothing in terms of, you know, uh, money. He understood how that he had a personal legacy to carry forward. He had a family that was deeply involved in politics and public service, but he never lost that sense of human connection. The other thing about him that I think was remarkable was that he did not hide who he was. That's right. He was, uh, His emotions were out there. His heart was out there, even when it wasn't in his best political interest. Right. Um, and I think it's a hard thing to do. And I think, I think you know, you made the point that almost every governor has had to respond to his legacy. And I think that's right. I know that many governors wished they hadn't. Yeah. You know, didn't have to. Do. And even, you know, whether it's the press corps that put that question to, you know, to people running for governor or serving as governor implicitly can you live up to mccall he did change the way we we look at the governorship and what we expect from the person in that office totally and it's a difficult in some ways it's not particularly fair to the people who followed him because it's a difficult legacy to live up to what he was able to accomplish the impact he had also the way in which he he allowed oregon to see itself in a new way Mm -hmm. that raised expectations on public service uh, as you point out, left a, a lasting legacy on the landscape. So one of the things I appreciate about your book is the portrait of this man is complicated and nuanced. Tom McCall, he's certainly a hero in this book. I think I would imagine you might describe him as a heroic type of figure. But his flaws as a human are also on display. And when I say flaws, I'm thinking and flaws might be too strong of a word, but the man projected this extreme confidence and he was very as you say commanding rhetorically but he also suffered from like crippling self-consciousness 
and was, you know, like at the, they talk about this story at the end of the campaign. He could not finish the campaign on the campaign trail because he was so stressed out. He couldn't, he couldn't ma- imagine the thought of losing. He loses the tax reform ballot measure, which we'll hopefully talk about later. And he, he says, I've got to resign. I can't do this. The, the people have rejected me. Like, how do you, what do you make of the contradictions of who he, of who he was? Yeah, that's exactly right. I think he was someone who, who understood the role he played in, in public life even before he ran for office. He was not just a reporter. He was on radio and on television. He was a commentator, which means that he kind of could take current events, whatever was happening that day or that week in Oregon, and help viewers and listeners make sense of it. He understood that. He had a perspective that was sometimes controversial mm-hmm. and that people would often be unhappy with him. But at the, at the same time, he could not stand the thought that people didn't like him. Yeah. It's a very day. It, and so the story you tell about the governor's race, that's absolutely true. His first, yeah, his first race for governor in 1966, he was running against the state treasurer, Democrat Bob Straub. Right. And they had a sense that McCall was ahead in the polls, but they were afraid that he was going to do something or say <laughs> something that was because of his nerves, basically. Yeah. And he became, people who worked on the campaign with him told me that he would look at a poll and it might say, you know, McCall 54, Straw 46, something like that. And he would want to know why 46% of the people didn't like him. Right? <laughs> as opposed to, you know, as if, say, we're winning, right? And what they did was the last four or five days of that campaign, they ran in a hotel room and they, they sent him there and he didn't come back out again. And it's Bob so Straub, <laughs> yes, Bob Straub told me, I think, and as well as other people who worked with Straub, who he was running against, said he basically disappeared. And it, that's what happened. And it was just such an effective strategy that four years later, when he was running for re-election, they, they did the same thing. <laughs> the same thing. And yeah, you couldn't get away with that today, you know. But they also knew that what his great strengths were, were also his vulnerabilities, which he spoke his mind. And um, that worked for him in that era, especially when the news media working as it did. You know, today it would be a different story, probably. But it worked for him. Yeah. So you you mentioned Bob Straub. What I also love about the book is like Tom McCall, all the giants of the last sort of like, I guess at this level point, it's been like 50 or 70 years of Oregon history. He was interacting with and had complicated relationships with each of these people. Bob Straub, probably central on that list. Although interestingly, by the end of the book, like Bob Straub and Tom were rivals in some ways. They ran against each other twice. Tom won both times. And then Bob becomes governor by running after he's term limited the first time. And, I, you know, I think Floyd McKay called it the Bob and Tom show because they were, you know, going around the they were going around the state and they actually didn't disagree on a whole lot. They, they were broadly aligned, at least on environmental policy. And by the end, Bob Straub is sort of a defender of McCall's legacy. And weirdly, I mean, Tom McCall's own party has kind of shifted. That'll, I guess, be my second question. But Bob Straub, Mark Hatfield, Atia, Packwood, Morris, they're all kind of in this. Maybe just give us a snapshot of like, how did Tom McCall fit into that constellation of these major figures? What was his relationship like with these folks? Well, let's start with Straub. Straub had been a state senator. He'd been a Lincoln County commissioner. And no one took him seriously as a contender for a statewide office. But he won the state treasurer's job at the same time that McCall moved up. He, McCall ran he gave up being a television commentator and became secretary of state. And they they arrived at the same time, these two positions, statewide positions and state government. 
And at the time, the state government was really run by what was called the control board, which was the yeah. governor, the secretary of state, and the state treasurer. That's right. And the governor at the time was a Republican, Mark Hatfield. That's right. And Hatfield found himself outvoted by the Democrat and this fellow <laughs> Republican a lot of times, which <laughs> Hatfield did not enjoy. And McCall's position was often, you know, he saw Straub as a political competitor for higher office, but he saw him as an ally and a compatriot in the things that really mattered at the time that was cleaning up the Willamette River, it was protecting the right to public access to Oregon beaches. Mm -hmm. And those were the two primary issues when they first ran. So in many ways, they were in the business of sort of trying to top each other during that campaign or Oregonians benefited. Because the, every time one of them would say something, someone would say, well, I'll do this and I'll do this. And it was all for the benefit primarily of conservation, for protecting Oregon's livability. But Hat um, Hatfield people, was sort of separate from that dynamic, right? Like McCall and, and Hatfield had an icier kind of relationship. Yeah. You know, it's often true in politics that the people who are politically aligned are oftentimes the most competitive with each other, in part because one is holding the stage that the other thinks that he should hold. Mm -hmm. McCall had that feeling about Hatfield. You know, Hatfield came up as kind of a with a determination to pursue politics and, you know, never lost a race in his career uh, from the House, State House to the Senate, Secretary of State and the governor and then, you know, Senate, U.S. Senate. McCall came in in some ways kind of laterally. He had been in broadcasting. He wasn't broadcasting, and he, he understood the importance of bringing the Republican Party, in, in his views, and in Hatfield's views, more to the center. The Republican Party, for example, Hatfield and McCall first met when they were both working to fight for civil rights through the Republican, bring the Republican Party more towards civil rights in the 50s. Hatfield mm -hmm. had an excellent record on that, and McCall couldn't get past his jealousy that Hatfield was already governor, was already successful, and... He struggled a lot with that. You know, I talked to Hatfield for this book, and, and, and Hatfield was incredibly candid about his relationship with McCall. And there are stories in the book that are tough about McCall, but there's a few that are also tough about Hatfield because they had a contentious relationship. You know, in the end, as Hatfield reminded me, you know, when McCall's funeral was held in the state capitol, it was, it was Mark Hatfield who sat next to McCall's widow. And that sort of showed that they had this enduring respect, even though there was a sort of deep competitiveness that McCall demonstrated. Hatfield was actually pretty good at hiding it publicly. McCall was not. Um, right. And Hatfield often got the better of him because he knew that McCall had a, an emotional side. He could get angry. He could, you know, sort of express himself in ways that, you know, Hatfield was very contained. You know, I have a funny story about Hatfield. I can tell it really quick. Yeah, yeah, please. I, I I I interviewed Hatfield at length. He was very generous with his time. And then um, I saw him about a month after the book came out. And he said, young man, I've, I've received a copy of your book. Oh, no. I said, Great. I said, have you read it? He said, well, I am in the process of reading it. But he said, not from beginning to end. And I said, no. He said, no. I picked up the book and I went straight to the index under H. Hatfield. Mark. <laughs> And I read those parts. It's a true story. And, he, and I started laughing because here was this U.S. senator, you know, of great esteem, who knowingly, you know, tongue in cheek was telling me, you know, the most important parts of this book were the ones about me. And I don't know of any other politician who would admit that. But, you know, he did. He did tell me I got it right. And that was the most important thing. So that's cool. Anyway. So 
the, that's, the a, that's a true story. The relationship you described between Hatfield and McCall sounds vaguely reminiscent of how the Atiyah McCall relationship was. Although maybe Atiyah, I think maybe a McCall might have not had quite as much respect for Atiyah because he was newer on the scene, younger. How would you classify their relationship? And Atiyah was kind to McCall even after McCall died, right? I mean, he also stands up at the funeral and talks about his legacy and and what he's done for Oregon. Yeah, Vicky T had been a state senator from Washington County, and at a time where times in which where there were so much Democrat Democrats were so much control of the legislature, there were only six or seven Republicans in the Senate out of thirty. Right? There was a famous photograph of all six or seven of them trying to fit into a phone booth. You know? <laughs> and but McCall also always saw Tia rather as someone who Vicky T as someone who was obstructing you know progress, and he didn't have much respect for him. When McCall was leaving office because of term limits, Democrat Bob Straub, who had lost McCall twice, McCall all but endorsed the Democrat as opposed to the fellow Republicans. And of course, it was Atia who, when McCall tried to make a comeback in 1978, after being out for four years, it was Atia who beat McCall in the Republican primary. Mm-hmm. It was a bitter situation for McCall. He never got over it. I will tell you that in talking to Atia, he was always incredibly gracious. And I think always a little hurt. He never could understand why McCall wasn't more accepting of him and more why they weren't closer. And I saw Atia not long before he died and, and, and he remained to be very gracious, even though McCall wasn't always that way toward him. So yeah. I yeah. had the pleasure of getting to meet Vic Atia a few times before he passed away. He was a member of my fraternity at the U of O and was stayed oh, yeah. really until he passed. And was one of the kindest and most gracious people I ever got to meet. And I was thinking about, I mean, let's talk about the Republican Party. Like, at the time, there seemed to be this pretty significant gap between where Tom McCall was in the party. I think you describe him in the book as a liberal Republican. And where Atia stood in the party, which was this more sort of like, I guess you could say business-friendly Republican but by today's standards, I think both of them are a lot closer together than where maybe the mainstream of the party is today. I'm curious kind of how how you think the mccall Atia era fits into the broader scope of the Republican Party. It's a really great question. You know, I do think that the party was starting to move to the right by the late 70s. McCall had, of course, moved away from the Republican Party. He had been very critical of national Republicans, the president, Richard Nixon, the vice president, Spiro Agnew. He did not, you know, hold back uh, when he had things, harsh things to say about anybody from any party that he disagreed with or who he felt weren't, weren't progressive enough. I may well have in the book called him a liberal Republican. I think he was, you know, in hindsight, far more progressive. But I think progressive is a better definition for him. Yeah. You know, as I look at as I look at it today, right? But you know, Vicky T was very much a, a Chamber of Commerce Republican, mm-hmm. sensitive to business needs, but also quite understanding of needs for human services and social services in the state. Atia had a, a terrible situation of making deep and serious cuts to the budget during the recession I talked about earlier. Nobody won in that era. That was very difficult. But yes, I, I think within by the time Atia left office in 1986, we were already seeing an extraordinary right-wing movement that had an impact on state politics and the, the governor's race in 1990 and on forward. And so the party shifted out from under a lot of the establishment Republicans in that way. So when McCall was governor, you know, he's he's the head of the Republican Party. He's the Republican Party standard bearer. He's the highest ranking Republican in the state. 
was there dissatisfaction with him at the time from the Republican Party, or did that happen after he left office? I don't remember widespread dissatisfaction. What there was was widespread dissatisfaction with him among a lot of the CEOs of major corporations in the state. And some of them were quite blunt about McCall um, because, well, well, what was he doing? He was asking their, their mills to stop polluting. He was asking their companies to stop turning you know, farmland into subdivisions where it didn't make sense for them to go. He was sending a message that Oregon was putting conservation on equal footing with the economy. And for a lot of these mostly old white men, that didn't go over very well. Hmm. You know, the one thing we haven't talked about was yet was McCall's most famous statement when he was trying to impress upon state that he was hoping to slow growth to a point where, not slow, let me rephrase that, control growth in a way that was reasonable and rational, as opposed to unhinged growth is what a lot of places in Oregon were seeing. He believed it because he thought it was better for the economy mm-hmm. not to have sprawling subdivisions that were incredibly expensive to serve. He thought that it was pointless to destroy important you know, farmland without thinking about what the trade-offs were, all of those considerations that became the heart of our land use system. And that was a tough argument for many people, not just who were Republicans, but also, you know, but uh, for a lot of business leaders. So the message he sent was, can't remember the exact quote, but he said, he said, come visit Oregon. This is a state of excitement, but for heaven's sake, don't come here to live. (laughs) That's exactly right. And of course, the, he was blamed for slamming the doors on Oregon and shutting out people, but which is, of course, nonsense because Oregon continued to grow at, at record rates. And as McCall explained himself years later, you know, what he was trying to say was, we are not ready for the onslaught. We need to think about the future. It was one of the ways that Vicatia later on really got under McCall's skin. Vicatia, mm-hmm. you know, Governor T was one of the people who, when I first got interested in writing this book, was saying McCall was bad for Oregon. And, you know, Atia tried to get McCall to take that statement back. And they actually had a, a media event yeah. at the Oregon-California border. I actually used it to open the book, where Atia thinks McCall is going to retract his statement. And he's going to, you know, <laughs> apologize for having said this years earlier. And McCall turned it around and did just the opposite in front of the cameras in the world and said, you know, Oregon continued to, even in the depths of a recession, a very painful one, the, the lowest point in the recession, the recession actually was Oregon needed to hold its place and continue to think about how to control growth, not stop it, not limit it, but be reasonable about how it works. I should have done a better job of bookmarking, but I kind of, oh, here we go. There's been a lot of bad mouthing about visit, but don't stay. McCall rumbled on. It served its purpose. We were saying visit, but don't stay because Oregon, Queen Bee, though she is, is not ready for the swarm. I'm simply saying, McCall continued, his voice lowering to a growl, that Oregon is demure and lovely and it ought to play a little hard to get. Then, barely pausing, he shot a quick, impatient look at Atia, who's standing next to him at this press conference. And then he says, and I think you'll all be just as sick as I am if you if you find it is nothing but a hungry hussy throwing herself at every stinking smokestack that's offered, which I, Tom McCall was such a gifted orator <laughs> that he could say something like that just off the cuff. Well, I'll tell you, that was probably not off the cuff. He would probably he probably had that ready to, to go. Preparing, that, preparing that, language, yeah. Yeah, but, but you know, for his rhetoric, the use of alliteration, 
for surprise, surprising combinations of the adjectives and nouns, you know, and verbs. He knew how to say something that would get people's attention. Yours as a writer, and he also knew he also knew how to command the spotlight. And it's true. I described that actually watching the raw footage of one of the TV stations. Let me come in and watch the raw footage of that event. Wow! And that's how I was able to describe it. And uh, no one remembers that Governor Tia was there at his own press event. What they remember is that McCall continued to stand up for Oregon in the darkest hours. And it was not only dark for Oregon. He he had terminal cancer and he knew it. And um, he, he understood what he was fighting for. So that's that's what I want to talk about next. I know we're we're going to come up on time here. This is an incredible book, and it's in part because of your writing, but in part, in part because it's a truly incredible story. I think something we have to spend some time talking about is Senate Bill 100, which yeah. is also what, what we call today the land use planning system in Oregon. And when when you say thing, or when Atia said things like McCall was bad for Oregon, I think primarily what he's referring to is Senate Bill 100 or the sort of like controlled growth that you're describing. So I guess let's quickly like cover how did Senate bill come to be? How did this become law? And why did McCall kind of latch onto this as, as the center point of his legacy? There was a clear understanding, especially p- people who uh, in suburbs and in rural areas, that farmland, open space was going to be quickly consumed by subdivisions, strip malls, highways, and that it had a social consequence not only the loss of livelihood and loss of farmland, but if you trace back the, the causes of pollution in, in, a, in, a, in a polluted Willamette River, it had to do with poor services. Communities didn't have a sewer systems. The, the effluent went straight into the river. Or the idea that we want to limit air pollution, then we shouldn't have people driving 20 miles out to a subdivision that it can, has, you know, it's what they called leapfrog de- subdivisions, you know, developments. And the idea was to build in a smart way. The idea actually came from a farmer who was also in the state Senate that there should be some, first of all, a requirement that there be zoning. Some counties didn't even have that. Mm. And then eventually the idea that every jurisdiction in Oregon should have a plan now called a comprehensive plan and have to follow it. And it didn't say you couldn't grow. It said you had to have a plan for growth. And that was the heart of it. And McCall understood that this was that every, all of the other problems that he had dealt with, all of the other th- things that he saw putting pressure on the livability in Oregon, traced back to smart growth. And this became the mechanism for that. Hmm. And it was Senate Bill 100, 1973 is when it passed. And there was such a, a serious effort to repeal it that you know, on three different elections, there were efforts to repeal the law, and, and all three went down to defeat, including the one that McCall, the, the one chance that, that opponents really had to repeal Randy's planning came at that one moment I was describing, 1982, when McCall was dying and the state was at its lowest point in terms of a recession. And that's when you know, McCall died, you know, fighting to protect that. And today it's been accepted as part of the fabric of the state. People may not still like it. And it's easy to point to places where it doesn't work as well as it should. But I would challenge folks to compare what has happened in Oregon to other places. And it's still a model around the country in terms of ways to you know, protect livability, to common sense growth, not to limit it, not to stop it, but just to be smart about it. And that came from that one bill you're describing, Senate Bill 100. 
And then a, a lot of work in the years after that by many people to try to figure out how to make this work as well as possible. My favorite part of your book, it's hard to read. It's hard to read about the period from a call between when he leaves office as governor and he dies because this is not a pretty, he, he's, he's, you can tell he's struggling. He's struggling personally. He misses being governor. He's dealing with some personal challenges with, I don't think the word alcoholism is ever used, but it, it's alluded to the fact that he's, he's drinking. His staff claims that the drinking has made him, I think fuzzy is the term that they use. He's also got a son who's navigating his own pretty significant challenges. So that part's, that part's hard to read, but there's this crescendo before the end of the book where you're talking about measure six and like the framing the framing is basically like you said this is the best chance that the sort of corporate interests have ever had to get rid of this thing that is a pain in their ass and they raise a lot of money and they're running a competitive campaign and the polling makes it really clear voters are with them i think at one point there's like a 26 percent lead in the poll to repeal land use planning and you just get the sense that just McCall is just getting beat up. Like his legacy is being tarnished. This thing that he cares so deeply about, this vision that he had for the state is at risk. But then there's this there's this other poll. And I can't, maybe you can fill in the, the, the gaps here, but there's this other poll that says there's one person in the entire state who is a trusted messenger on the issue of land use planning, according to voters. And his name is Tom McCall. And so Tom McCall has terminal cancer that started in his spine and basically spreads everywhere. I'll read a little quote and then you can fill in the gaps of the story. This is from, I can't remember where this is from. There's a video of it on YouTube that folks can find, but he's basically, this is one of his last public appearances where he's trying with everything he's got to defend his legacy. And this is just an excerpt from an excerpt from a longer, longer remarks. TV cameras were there by, by design. This is Tom McCall. You all know I have terminal cancer and I have a lot of it, but what you may not know is that the stress induces its spread and induces its activity. Stress may even bring it on, yet stress is the fuel of the activist. And this activist loves Oregon more than he loves life. And I know I can't have both very long, but the trade-offs are all right with me. But if the legacy we helped give Oregon and which made it twinkle from afar, well, if it goes, then I guess I wouldn't wanna live in Oregon anyhow. And he's using he uses that kind of language to defend land use planning and defend his vision and the image of Oregon as this beautiful sort of haven. And ultimately, they win. The measure wins. What's happening in McCall's life in these final weeks? He's clearly aware of his health deteriorating, and he's made a conscious decision on how to use his time. That's exactly right. This came, uh, you were talking before, this is 1982, that same campaign where the where Governor T is running for re-election polls at event at the at the border and McCall was frail. He was in a lot of pain. Um, he knew his cancer was terminal. He had not made that public. Mm. No one heard that. I think anybody who saw him knew that it was he was quite sick. Public figures didn't go out and say, I'm dying of cancer. They didn't mm. do that. Politicians, political leaders didn't do that. But he knew that he wanted people to understand the gravity of how he saw this personally. And there's no question that that campaign turned around at that moment. And the reason I know that is that the pollster for that, for the opposition to this measure, you had measure six in 1982 was the measure, told me that they they, they could see that McCall was still the, the most uh, revered figure in Oregon. And how could he 
you know, how, how could they you know, not use him? And the event was was a press conference, actually. Mm. It was carried by every TV station. And then the audio, I don't know whether McCall re-recorded it, but his statement became part of the advertising. Mm. And at that point, you know, the person who was the bolster told me at that point, those numbers flipped. And there was there was no way that measure was going to pass. And all it took was McCall uh, in a very deeply personal way with utmost honesty saying this is what this means to Oregon. Mm-hmm. You know, and from to hear from Tom McCall that he would he wouldn't want to be in Oregon anyway. You know, it was incredibly powerful. I remember that when it happened. And, uh, you know, when you're writing a book like that, you know, you um, I kept thinking over and over again, I, I can't all of the things that came together at the end of his life. You could not have made them up and have people believe it, but it's what happened. You know, he died, I think, just about two months after that election. So it's emotional to read. I get choked up even talking about it now because it's such a it's such a beautiful. It also is what make made him such a special and unique person. Like a lot of politicians at the end of their lives, particular. I mean, what we don't talk about is Tom Moncall had a really embarrassing defeat when he ran for governor a third time. He took his four years off and he came in second in the primary behind Atia, and you know he was frustrated and he ultimately leaves the Republican Party, registers an ind- and is an independent. A lot of times, I'd say most politicians by the end of their career are retired, living comfortably, maybe wandering in the limelight here and there. But what Tom McCall did as he's dying, and as you describe in the book, in, in legitimate pain, I mean, he's wincing when he walks, uh, like the, the cancer had really taken over his body. With his final breaths, <laughs> He's fighting for a ballot measure to go down to protect a legacy, which is just proof that for, you know, complicated guy, not a perfect guy, but he believed what he believed and he believed it deeply. And here we are in 2023, decades and decades after he's been gone and the crown jewels of his legacy, public access to beaches, land use planning, the bottle bill, they all remain intact and they all remain not just intact, but I think sort of central to how we think of ourselves as a state, central to our identity, what it means to be the state of Oregon. And that's close to unmatched in the pantheon of Oregon governors, I would say. You've captured it perfectly. That's exactly right. Um, if I had uh, written this book, even at the time, now if you go back and look at it, you know, if these things didn't matter anymore, if they were history, well, they're with us. He is with us all of the time. And as he would, was a lot of people pointed out, you know, McCall oftentimes embraced the ideas of other people, all as well as, you know, came up with ideas on his own or with his staff. He didn't much care. He didn't much care you know, where the ideas came from as long as it, it, it moved forward his ideal, his, his hope to protect the state's livability. Even when he wanted Oregon to grow and to prosper and knew it was inevitable, you know, how best to do that. And, um, you know, we are still living with that. We are still living um, in ways we should be grateful for. It's still part of the fabric of our state today. That's right. Well, I know we're we're right at time, Brent. But before we go, I have to, we talked about this before we started recording, but over your shoulder, there's a little piece of Oregon campaign memorabilia history. Can you just, can you describe for listeners what's leaning on your wall? Yeah. And uh, this is always in my office. This is a campaign poster from uh, Tom Paul's re-election campaign. A lot of folks may remember or may not, but there was a very famous photographer in Oregon who used to capture all of the amazing beauty of the state, Ray Atkinson. Ray Atkinson. And yeah. Atkinson took, was it four, four, four or six versions of, okay, there's oh. four versions of the poster. Yeah. 
Yeah, or there may be, I don't know how many, but I have two of them. And this is, of course, Mount Hood. And it says, um, keep Oregon, Oregon. Keep Tom McCall. And when he ran for re-election, that was it. That was the slogan. And I thought it really summed it up. And it's a prized possession. It's so on. I love it. So totally. I've got my own copies in my office. And yeah. another prized possession I have, you'll probably get a kick out of this. This was my grandmother's. She's since passed, but she gave it to my dad, and my dad has given it to me. It's um, you know, the American Gothic, the like stern couple holding the pitchfork. Yeah. It's it's a cross-stitched picture of American Gothic, and the caption, which is cross-stitched really big at the bottom, says keep out of Oregon. <laughs> and it's an allusion to Tom McCall's visit, but don't stay at the time. And my family always gets a kick out of that. That's great. Yeah. Well, That's Brent, great. I really appreciate you taking the time to walk down memory lane with the, a book that you wrote early in your career, which I will say, I give a copy of this book to all of my staff members, <laughs> Fire at Eden's Gate, because I think it does. It is sort of like an Oregon autobiography, or at least that period of Oregon. So thank you for writing it. And thank you for sit taking some time to chat with me about it. Um, I really appreciate you coming on the podcast. You're very welcome. I, I enjoyed it quite a bit. Awesome. Thanks. Listeners, thanks so much for listening. And uh, we'll see you back here next week. 